All right, good morning. Man, it's good to be here with you. If you're a guest with us, welcome. We're really glad you're here. My name's Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here. And I think you came at a great time because um, we have been for several weeks in the book of Romans. We've been looking at the New Testament book of Romans. And actually, it was a letter that was written by Paul. And Paul writes to the Christians um, in the city of Rome in the first century. Letter written about 56 AD which is about 25 years after Jesus was executed and to the testimony of hundreds of witnesses seen very much alive again, all right? So about 25 years after that happened, Paul is writing to these churches that have sprung up all over the Mediterranean Rim, but particularly in the city of Rome. Now, I, we've been encouraging you o- over this, these last several weeks that we've been going through the book of Romans to be reading along. And that is whether you grab a Bible that is at the hub on your way out, they're free. We just want to put that in your hands. You can have it. Maybe you've been reading out of your own Bible or you've been reading on the Version Bible app. However you read, we've been encouraging you and continue to do that for you to interact in God's word. Um, just, just you and God's word, but also many of our life groups. So if you're an adult and you have not plugged into one of our life groups, our life groups have been um, reading through and studying the book of Romans as well during the week and and their times together. And so it's just a cool opportunity to be in a life group to not only get just get to know some friends, um, but to dive deeper into what this full life that Jesus promises us, what that looks like. And, and so those are just really cool, unique opportunities. So if you're not connected here at White Oak yet, um, and you want to, that's a perfect way to connect is to jump into a life group. Many of them are wrapping up here towards the beginning of December, but we will kick back off at the end of January. So that's not, it's not too early for you to sit, put on your connection card in your program. Hey, I'd be interested in a life group, and we'll let you know when we can jump into those. But there are three uh, basic premises that Paul has been offering in his letter to the Romans. The first one is that it is by God's grace through faith in Jesus that anybody can be saved. All right? That's his first and foremost, the most important premise he's going to have it throughout the book of Romans is that it's God's grace. You can't earn it. You, can, you don't deserve it. All right? But through your faith in Jesus, you got it. That's the only thing that can save you. All right, it's not your religious principles, it's not your religious background, it's not how good you are, all right? It is only through faith in Jesus that you can be saved. And then he builds off that. This, one of the, the second premise in, in the book of Romans is this, you've been transformed now by that faith, all right? So you are no longer controlled by sin any longer. You are now controlled by the Holy Spirit. So understand this, all right? Because he unpacks this a lot earlier in the, in the book here. When you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit enters your life and does a work on you, begins to change you. It begins to transform your mind, the way that you think, the way that you and I behave and believe, and that's God's power doing it. And Paul says, that's now who you are. You're controlled by the Holy Spirit. The sinful nature has been destroyed, right? And Paul says, and because of that, we kind of get into this later part of the book of Romans, because of that, God is equipping you and me, okay, to mobilize his church for something that's really, really important. And that is that you and I would bring peace and love, that we would be the, that we, okay, the church, would be the champions of peace and love, both to each other, but especially for those who are outside of the church. These are the basic premises that Paul's made throughout Romans, okay? 
Now, the context of the letter is this. The Jewish Christians who were living in Rome, they were expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius in 49 AD, all right? Now, what the emperor saw was a threat was what he called, or historians that were um, around the time of Claudius called the Crestus Affair, right? Which means Christ Affair. Or if we were to solve it today, they would call it the Jesus issue, right? The Jesus problem. What the Roman government saw in the mid-first century is this Jesus issue. Many high-ranking Roman officials were giving their lives over to this newly formed cult called Christianity, all right? Jesus, all right? And so it was foreign to them and it scared them. So Claudius said, here's what we're going to do about this Crestus issue. We're going to, to expel all Christian Jews out of the city. And they did, all right? When he died, they returned a few years later to find the church that they knew, these home churches, right? These pockets of people that met in homes all over the city, these, these returning refugees, if you will, um, came back into their city, into these churches, and the churches looked very different than they had when they left them. Because the churches now had been run for several years and, and organized by Gentiles or non-Jewish Christians, essentially uh, pagan converts, Roman pagan converts to Christianity. All right? And the churches no longer looked very Jewish. The customs of the Jews and the Old Testament biblical laws of the Jews were no longer being followed, all right? Now, when you get into chapters 12 and 13, which we're going to jump into chapters 13 here in just a minute, a a major theme in chapter 13 is this fancy word called Christoformity, Christoformity. Now, I'm not going to just say that really again. Well, we're going to say it this way. It's what the Christ-formed life, okay? Major theme in chapter 12 and 13. What does this life for followers of Jesus who have been transformed by the power of grace and faith, what does this Christ-formed, this Jesus-formed life look like? Now, Paul's going to introduce this to the Romans, just as he's going to introduce it to you and me today, all right? Because he's going to say to the Christians living in the city, he said, no longer is your weapons power and violence which was so common in the Roman Empire. Now the Christians in Rome are going to use the weapons of peace and love. Like those are going to be your weapons. And those weapons of peace and love are going to bring this entire empire to its knees in submission. Not in submission to a ruling authority who came and oppressed, but in submission to their heavenly father so they can experience this full life that Jesus promised. And the weapons that you are to use, Paul says, is peace and love, and you're going to change your, the city. That's what the Christ-formed life does. So here's our big idea today is I am love. It's written on the front of your program, and we're going to unpack that here this morning. So you cannot uh, really read chapter 13 as it goes with all of this without reading first chapter 12 because it's, one just kind of bleeds right into the next. So we're going to go backwards here for a moment, and we're going to pick up chapter 12 and we're going to start with verse 2. Okay, this was Paul's um, comments. He says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. All right? The Christ-formed life starts with you allowing the Holy Spirit to change the way that you and I think. Changes the way that you and I think. All right? Verse 9. He says, Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, 
hold tightly to what is good. So what Paul is doing here with this, don't just pretend to love others, but really love them. It's, kind of a, little, it's a little sarcastic, which is what I love about <laughs> that verse. Is he's setting the table for this next conversation. So we have the table set for us this morning. Chapter 12, he says, you are transformed. Continually being transformed, your mind is transformed to the things of Jesus. And as an overflow of that, we're going to learn how to love each other. So the, the table's been set for Romans chapter 13. So we're going to jump down to Romans chapter 13 today. We're going to start in verse 8. For those of you who are OCD, we are starting in the middle of the chapter, all right? We're going to go back, we'll, we'll go back to the beginning here in just a little bit. So Romans 13, 8. He says, owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandment says you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. So what is complicated, but also crazy simple this morning, is that Paul says, what does a Christ-formed life look like? And and if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, that's you, right? What does a Christ-formed life look like? Ultimately, first and foremost, we exude love towards other people. That's it. Paul's Jewish Christian audience needs to hear this. Okay, because they sit in judgment of their brothers and sisters who are pagan converts to Christianity. When they came back after Claudius expelled them, they walked into these churches and all these Gentile Christians are leading and and they're like, what happened to our Jewish laws? What happened to our Jewish customs? What happened to the Old Testament rules that we're no longer following? And so the Jewish Christians looked down on the Gentile Christians and they said, it's not fair. Like these jokers get to come into the church and it gets to experience this wonderful grace of Jesus and forgiveness, and they didn't have to follow any of these customs or laws to get it. And so you have this fracture in the church in the first century in Rome, this infighting amongst themselves, okay? And Paul's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to quote Moses. And so the Jewish Christians in the room who are hearing this letter, they're saying, yeah, we know, Ju- we know what Moses said. And Paul says, good. So you know that committing adultery is... Uh, Committing adultery is wrong, right? And they say, yeah. And Paul says, do you know why? Because God said so. And Paul says, no, (laughs) all right? No, adultery is wrong because when you take it down to its basic form, if you step out on your husband or wife, you are not loving them. And if you engage in any kind of affair, sexual or emotional, whatever, with another person whom you're not married to, you are not extending love to that woman or that guy either. See, it's all about love. Paul says, so you know that it's wrong to disrespect your parents, right? And the teenagers in the churches that are sitting there in, in, in Rome are like, yeah, we've heard that, you know, since, right? We've heard that since, since we were young, we know it, right? And Paul says, why is it a sin to disrespect or lie to your parents? 
And the teenagers in the room would say, because God said so, right? And I'm sorry, I know most teens don't talk like that. Um, what I'm trying to do is have like that snarky, sarcastic voice that I infer and now I have put on you teens in the room. So you're welcome. All right, so, so why is it wrong? And they say, well, because God said so. And Paul's like, wrong. But ultimately, it's wrong to lie to your parents because love does not lie. Love has no ounce of disrespect in it. It is a sin to lie to your parents and disrespect them because there's no love in that. And on and on he goes. Why is it a sin to be greedy or to lust after someone? Why is sexual activity outside of God's intended design for it? Why are those things sinful? Paul says, not because it violates some religious law, but because it violates the law of love. Love. Has no, sin has no place in love. And that's why it's sin. So Paul says to the Jewish audience, you want to be just bent on fulfilling God's requirements of you? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And most of us would, might say, or many of us, I should say rather, yeah, I want to know that I'm fulfilling what God requires of me. Paul says, great, sell yourself out to love. Sell yourself out to love. But our hearts, and this is really no matter what, you're, what you believe about faith or about church or Jesus or where you are on your spiritual journey, all of us have a tendency not towards love, but towards something else. We say, okay, love, you know, that's sell myself out to love. Well, what does that mean? Well, what does it not mean? Okay, B because that's normally, our first inclination usually is not love, is it? Now, I mean, it's easy to love people who, um, who you think deserve love, Right? So it's a little easier to, to love people who you think, like, oh, okay, it's my family, and I'll love them. I treat them like garbage, but I love them. You know, um, I'll love my, you know, my wife or my parents or my friends. Like, I'll, I'll use the word love. There was that sarcastic voice again. Sorry. Um, you know, I, it's easy to love people who I think deserve my love. It's easy to love people who I will, something will reciprocate back to me, right? It's easier to love those people if I think I'm going to get something in return, Right? Christmas is coming, and those are the people you buy gifts for, right? You're hoping you're going to get something back. No? Nobody else? All right. That's just me. That's fine. Now you a little insight into my psyche. All right? It's easy to love when you get to decide what love looks like. When you get to define it, that's easy. Now, it's harder to love people who you would consider your enemies, people you would consider... Um, well, people who are just hard to love, right? So, so Paul uses this language that he says, the only thing that you owe to everyone is love. But oftentimes we think we owe people exactly what it is that they've done for us and to us, don't we? That's often our first inclination. Paul says, the only thing you owe is love. And we think, yeah, but... I mean, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, but he's not gonna get away with what he just did. Or she's not going to get away off the hook for what she said about me. So ultimately, we get to define love in, it's love 
until you screw me over. And then it's on. And that's our first inclination. Now, it's also, Paul says, have no obligation except you're obligated to love people. Obligated. Like, we, we have to. Like, we feel like we must, right? But we feel more obligated to judging other people. That's one of our first inclinations, not love. It's like, hmm, how am I dressed better than them, right? How am I better than them? Because any time that we can find a fault, even a little thing in someone else, it just makes us feel better about ourselves. So whether it's like they have, like we have more money, we dress better, we have better experiences, we have more, more stuff, um, we're smarter, more athletic, we've, got it, we've just got it together, we've got a better like, family, and we just know how to do family better than you. Whatever it is, we'll find anything. We know how to do faith, right, better than most people. That's what we'll say. Like, I come to church, and I'm like, yeah, I'm probably closer to the Jesus than, yeah, kind of most of those people, you know? And it just makes us feel better about where we are. Our inclination is not love. It's we feel obliged to judge. And on and on it goes. We define our faith journey. We, we, we define our spiritual journey as a list of rules. We just do. So it's no wonder why the millennial generation, actually the generation before that, which is mine, which is generation X, all right? Then the millennial generation and whatever letter they've attached to the next one, Z or X, Y, Z or something, um, all right? It's no wonder that those people are leaving the church in droves in America. Why? I think largely because they were raised, either intentionally or unintentionally, to believe that faith and religion was just a rules, rules a list of boxes to check. And it really didn't much have to do with love. Paul says, sell yourself out to love. And he's talking to an audience who really, that's not their first nature. Is it yours? Is it mine? So we say, okay. Paul says, love. So we have to ask the question. So what does that look like? What do I do? Now, why is that the wrong question? Because we want to turn loving somebody into a rule so that we can measure whether we've done it or not. This is with the crazy cycle. So Nathan, let's look, look at what Romans says, what love looks like, so we can check that box so we know we did it. Love's not a rule. That you can just like write off and say, I'm done. I'm good. Okay, so what does love require of me? What, is, what does love really require of me, right? And we want a simple answer for that so that we can check the box. Paul is telling the church, Moses said it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus reiterated that and modeled it with his life. And the only way that we're going to change our city and our schools and your home is through love. Now, Paul has been dealing in Romans chapters 1 through 11 with an internal issue in the church. These Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians who just can't get along, all right? He shifts here in Romans 12 and 13. He's going to pivot. And now Paul's going to challenge him, well, what is a Christ-formed life? If you are being transformed and formed to look like Jesus, what does a Christ-formed look, life look like when it, it applies to those who are outside of the church? those who aren't part of the faith community. 
Now listen to what he says. Now we're going to go back to chapter 1 and verse chapter 13. I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 1. This is how he begins this conversation. It's going to bother you. It's great. All right. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. So you must submit them, you must submit to them, sorry, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes, too, for, these are the, for the same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. What you owe them. What is it that he said, that he said you owe them? Love. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Now, people really get bent out of shape with this one. It's great, isn't it? Like, because what your natural response is, and I just read that at face value, and I say, okay, well, what about Hitler? Right? That's kind of like our first go-to. What about Hitler? What about Stalin? What about pick your current political leader that you don't like, all right? What about um, this, you know, what, what about corruption? What about abortion? What about these rules and these people that, just, you know, like, are Christians supposed just to, like, submit to them and support them and vote for them even if we disagree with them? Like, that's what God's trying to say, and it bothers us. Because that's how it reads outside of the context. So, but context is important. When the Jews return to Rome, Claudius is dead. Nero is now the emperor. Now, if you've ever heard anything about Nero, he's not going to be a big fan of Christianity either. So it gets bad for them, even worse for them later. But the empire suffers from a heavy tax burden to wage the wars that Rome is waging, to conquer the territories in all, I mean, from India to North Africa up to the British islands, right? Um, it's, it's an expensive thing to wage war and, 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 and keep an empire together. So the Jewish Christians are heavily taxed or, along with every other citizen in Rome. Now, what's probably going on here, because this context is so specific, is that Paul is hearing inklings of rebellion. All right? And it's probably not the Jewish Christians like arming themselves and going out in the streets because that's never usually gone well for the Jewish people. All right? But it's probably the Jewish Christians revolting against their government in a more subversive way by not paying their taxes. This is what the Jewish Christians are saying. They're gathering in groups and they're like, you know what? We hate Rome. Right? We hate the oppression. I mean, the Jews felt this great zeal of national pride and patriotism, and they hated and resented this occupying government, right? So what Paul is dealing with is you've got groups of Christians gathering together and say, you know what we're going to do? You know, screw Rome and their emperor. We're going to stop paying taxes. That's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to stick it to them. That's how we're going to fight back. So in the beginning of chapter 13, all right, this isn't a commentary on how followers of Jesus are always supposed to, without question, always support and agree with the governing authorities, right? What Paul is stressing is that you and I as followers of Jesus must learn to love even when the odds are stacked against us. Even when we don't want to. 
even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's unfair, even when our enemies seem to prosper and oppress, Paul says your weapon against such things will be love. What does love look like when the odds are stacked against us? And then he gives us uh, a couple descriptors of it that I want to share with you today. One of them is he says you must love your enemy. Now, to love your enemy as yourself is probably one of the oldest, most known mantras of the Christian faith. And it was a couple, it was a thousand years old before that, you know, going way back because Moses had said it to the Jewish people. It's an early command of God is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus will reiterate this phrase over and over again in his ministry. Love your enemies and love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan? One of the most popular ones. Jesus is just emphasizing this fact. You will love your neighbors, your enemies, as much as you love yourself. In fact, Jesus is going to do something even very audacious. Is this one time these religious, these Jewish religious leaders are going to come up to Jesus, and they're going to say, what is the most important commandment? And of course, This Jewish religious leader is thinking back to Moses' words in Deuteronomy, and he says, it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your soul. And then Jesus says, and the second most important commandment is just like the first one. Wait a minute. There's nothing more important than loving God. Jesus says, yes, there is. Because if you claim to know my father, then the second commandment is equal to the first one. You will love your neighbor as yourself. This one is equal to this one. And it's saying weird things like that that eventually got him killed. Love your enemies. If you can't love your enemies, those who talk about you, those who make fun of you, those who don't look or think like you, those people that you don't like, and listen, some of us will consider our spouses sometimes as an enemy, right? Our kids, kids, your parents, Maybe your boss at work. Maybe there's annoying coworkers. Paul's saying if you can't love your enemies, then this, and this is so hard to hear, then you don't know what love looks like at all. Isn't that hard to hear? Then you have no idea what love looks like at all. Paul knows this, that the way of the Christ-formed life is that followers of Jesus in Rome are going to pay their taxes and they're going to be good citizens. Why? Because by paying their taxes and being good citizens, they are going to exude peacemaking and justice and love and love not rebellion, is going to win their city. 
I wonder if the Christians in Ross know that. Or the followers of Jesus in Colerain know that. If we want to see our families and our, and our schools and our city change, the people of Jesus Christ would love especially when the odds are stacked against us. He also says, in this love your enemies is, you have no obligation to anger, so let go of your anger. You're only obligated to love, not for revenge. Let go of your anger. Man, we have a hate and run culture, don't we? I mean, you you can hate anybody now, and it's great. It's fine. Pick Pick your group. Pick your occupation, pick a color of skin, pick your gender, and and you can just hate anybody and everybody. Because you're not allowed to hate anybody, but everybody hates everybody. It's a crazy culture we live in, all right? And it's just so easy to hate. Anybody on Ross Talk? Anybody on Ross Talk? Right? It's kind of like this community kind of, I don't know, Facebook page or whatever. And Ross Talk is fun. It's fun in in a horrible way. Like, if you just like... You know, soap operas are off TV now at daytime for the most part, but you just scroll through Ross Talk, and it's like crazy. People are crazy. Also, it's good for if you lost your dog. It's also good for that. But, <laughs> but I'm telling you, and I love you, and I just appreciate the boldness people have on Ross Talk. It's just crazy, crazy. Okay, so because it's so easy, isn't it, to criticize and, and, and just hate on people and then just kind of back off and run away. And it, it, we just live in this hate and run culture, right? I remember a time, and this is so convicting for me, I'll never forget this moment, when, we, when before we moved to Ross, we lived in Coleraine Township. And we lived in a neighborhood that was right off of Coleraine. And, and, and to, to follow that street back into the neighborhood, there were some apartment buildings that were um, partially government housing. And so there were people that had needs, right? There were people who were struggling more than me, who would often be pedestrians and would walk by our, you know, down our street uh, up to Colerain Avenue to go to the store or, or catch the bus or, or whatever was happening up there. And, you, you know, people walking by. My car got broken into once, and by broken into, I mean I left it unlocked and things were stolen. So broken was not really what happened. The best part of that story is, side note, is I had a computer bag sitting in there, and they took it, and the only thing in it was a Bible. Isn't that great? And maybe a pen, I don't know, but so they could highlight their favorite verses. So, so I'm an evangelist at heart. Like I just, you just steal my Bible all day long. All right. So, so I remember seeing people, I'm just standing at my dining room window and I just watched these these people walk by. Like, I mean, like a dozen times a day you could look out and see people walking. And I just remember thinking, I don't remember specifically what I thought, but I would be embarrassed to never tell you. Um, Just contempt, judgment. It wasn't love. And, and I remember thinking these thoughts, like, just, how am I better than them? And, oh, my gosh, like, this neighborhood. And just, you know, you know. And I hope you don't know, but I'm guessing you do. And, and I remember thinking in that moment, like, the Holy Spirit's like, what are you doing? You self-righteous turd. <laughs> right? Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm standing there thinking, wait, wait a minute, like, that is a son and daughter of God just, that just walked by there. No less than me. They deserve no less than I deserve. And that is the love from a really good father in heaven. What if my first response looking out that window that day was love? What if it was just my first thought 
forget any action that was put behind it. What if my first response was just love? It was not. It was my fifth thought. And it, and it, and it convicted me. A Christ-formed life in the Roman Empire and in Ross Township and in Coleraine Township and in Cincinnati, Ohio subverts rebellion or revenge and anger and it turns it towards generosity. The way that the Christians in Rome and in Ross and in Cincinnati and Coleraine will turn their city around is by striking back with peace and love. Thirdly, Paul turns to the pagan converts to Christianity and he pivots and he starts talking to the non-Jewish Christians in the room. And he said, and you're not off the hook either because you've been transformed by Jesus. So wake up your faith and quit falling asleep at the wheel. He tells them they've been asleep in the stupor. Here's the third thing. You love your enemies. You let go of your anger and you wake up your faith. Look what he says in Romans 13, 11. This is all the more urgent for you to know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling or jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let, your sinful, don't let yourself think about ways to indulge in your evil desires. Man, Paul's turning to these guys and it's like, listen, I know how you Romans love to party, all right? You know how to throw wild parties at night, right? I've been here enough and I know. He said, but Christ has transformed your life now and the rule for you is love. So you're putting aside those things because there is an urgency about us right now. Wake up. Like you've been transformed. Let's not waste any more time than showing love to our neighbors who are not in the church, who don't know Jesus. He's like, but many of you believers are in this, with this stupor. You're asleep. You're asleep in your marriages. I mean, you're married, but like you don't know what it really means to love your wife. You're asleep in your parenting and, and yeah, you've got kids, but you're asleep at the wheel when it looks like to really love them, to love your parents, to love your boss, to love your coworkers and your neighbors, right? Paul says, you've been asleep at the wheel. There's an urgency about this. Jesus is alive, people, and he's going to come back. And Paul says, that should motivate you to get your butt out of bed and start loving. This is your wake-up call. There's an urgency about it. And that is how Paul ends chapter 13. <laughs> Love. Yeah, but what about love? Okay, so what do I do practically speaking? <laughs> Love. What does that look like? Give us some practical. Love. 
So here's what we're going to do in our, in, our, um, in our time of reflection this morning. And, I, and the band's going to come out, and they're going to play. And we're just going to give you a minute. And I know sometimes when you're sitting here um, in the quiet, a minute feels like five minutes. And that's good, all right? So this is what we want to do in this minute-long, five-minute period, is, is I want you just to ask your Heavenly Father or um, maybe it's for the first time in a long time you've ever even talked to God, I want you to ask this question uh, for yourselves of him. And this is the question that every follower of Jesus, in fact, even if you're not following Jesus, ask yourself this question, because you're going to be amazed what it, what it does. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? In your relationship with your parents, what does love require of me? And how you raise your kids, what does love require of me? And how you treat the people at school or the people at work that aren't like you, that you don't even like, you ask the question, what does love require of me? In your marriages, to love your husband well, what does love require of me? When it comes to your sexuality, this gift that God gave you in a committed marriage relationship. Right now, today, what does love require of me? To my brothers and sisters in Christ who sit next to me and serve next to me and study and love next to me, what does love require of me for those inside the church? For those who aren't part of a church family. People I don't even know or people that I do. What does love require of me? Paul says in the beginning of of Romans chapter 12, he said, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all he has done for you. All of this, all of it, comes because God loves you. Because you are a son and daughter of a Father in heaven who loves you perfectly, just as you are. You are loved so well, so love. What does love require of me? Let's ask God that this morning. Father God, I thank you for loving us. I thank you for the grace and the forgiveness and the love that comes from Jesus Christ. And we ask this question now, Father, asking you to just put a burning passion in our hearts to answer this question. What does love require of me?